news, notes, and Zola. Next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shao kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. There it is, there it is. Get out, get out. All right. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 8th, and show number 54 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll have our regular talk with Todd, featuring correspondent Todd Zola from MastersBall.com and Baseball HQ and ESPN and others discussing what we learned from the post-trade fab bidding for crossover players in expert leagues, four factors in choosing players for the stretch, and a wild new idea for fantasy sports, drafting fractions of players. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll also have our regular commentaries in our Metric Minute. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at hard hit rate for batters. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Max Scherzer of Detroit at Toronto against Marcus Stroman, Zach Wheeler of the Mets visiting Kyle Kendrick of the Phils, and more. And in Masternotes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy talks about general manager lessons from the deadline. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. I guess we have to start with what would have to be characterized as sad news from the world of fantasy baseball in the last week. Two of the top, probably four or five picks in mixed leagues, and two of the top three in National League formats are out for the year. Arizona first baseman Paul Goldschmidt took a hand injury, and Pirates superstar outfielder Andrew McCutcheon is not guaranteed to be out for the year, but it looks that way. He's got broken ribs. Let's start with McCutcheon. The Pirates are battling for a division title or maybe a wild card spot. This is terrible news at the worst possible time for them and for his fantasy owners. So how are the Pirates going to fill their roster, and does it augur any kind of replacement value for fantasy owners? You know, probably the, the the most playing time looks like it will come with Travis from for Travis Snyder. We're we're projecting a playing time gain of thirty percent from him as a result of that uh, of that injury. And um, Travis Snyder is certainly a, a kind of guy we've we've liked for a long time. You, you keep waiting for him to break out, but he hasn't done it yet. And so, uh, Travis Snyder is not a guy I'd be jumping on. I think to uh, to complete my roster for the end of the year. So I don't see much in that situation with McCutcheon that's going to lead to players coming up that you may want to grab immediately in terms of your fantasy team. And uh, Arizona, of course, no expectations of a playoff berth there, but they still have playing time to fill with Goldschmidt's absence. Uh, what are the ramifications in the Arizona playing time situation? Now, Gold, you know, th- this is a little more interesting, I think, in, in terms of what it could do. Um, one of the guys that's going to get some playing time is Jordan Pacheco at first base, maybe some third base. And, and the interesting thing is, in some leagues, he may qualify a catcher. Uh, and, and here's a guy, he's not gonna, he's not gonna win your league for you he, again. But if you're struggling with a two catcher league, here's a guy who could come in and, and hit a, for a decent batting average, 
every once in a while hit one out, not on a great level, but could be a decent kind of replacement guy if you've got catch if he's got catcher eligibility. I wouldn't want him at a corner infield spot. There's simply not enough there. But uh, certainly he could hit for a decent batting average uh, and be all right as a second catcher as a sort of replacement for uh, for Goldschmidt. So I, I think that's a guy I, w- I would indeed look at. Nick, Mark Trumbo just came back to the lineup recently after a fairly serious injury of his own. He was gone for quite a while. He's been struggling since his return. How does the uh, Paul Goldschmidt situation augur for Trumbo's playing time? Well, you know, Trumbo, I, I don't think it alters the playing time we, that we had projected for Trumbo. Uh, Anyway, I think that uh, uh, Trumbo is going to play first base some, I, I think. And so, I, you know, I don't think the Goldsmith situation really alters Trumbo's playing time. I think it'll stay about what we'd expected uh, through the rest of the season. Uh, but he's going to have to produce, of course. But uh, and he's an important part of that uh, of that Arizona lineup and, and hits in the middle of it. And so uh, I think he, we will need to produce, but I don't think it's going to change the playing time expectation. He will uh, probably move up a slot or so in the uh, in the batting order. However, uh, one of the beneficiaries could be outfielder David Peralta, whose name came up in Greg Pyron's batting buyer's guide column, which he titled "Risk Tolerance." What does that mean, and what does Greg say about David Peralta? You know, this was a really nice nice column that uh, that Greg wrote on risk tolerance. And what what Greg did was kind of look at um, a, a Dom dis um, split for for hitters and looking at, at various weeks. And, and, and this is the kind of thing that drives, drives fantasy owners crazy. You've got a guy who's hot one week and then cold for three weeks and then hot for another week and cold for three weeks. And, and that can literally throw your team into, into an upheaval depending upon the kind of format you're playing in. So he looked at guys who have primarily hot Dom weeks. That is, they are not, they, they, they don't have a lot of disasters. Uh, and, and David Peralta is one of, of interesting name that came out of that column. Uh, Peralta is not uh, hitting right around 300 at this point in time since he's come up. Four home runs, three stolen bases, and 200 at bats. So, not uh, not lighting up the box score, but being very consistent in terms of uh, uh, of batting average and uh, scoring some runs. 25 runs scored and 200 at bats, which is not bad at all. And uh, so, some fantasy value there. Again, he's not a guy who's going to win your league for you, but if you're struggling at an outfield spot. Peralta's a guy who could uh, could give you something in terms of consistency, at least, for the rest of the season. And certainly the injury uh, bodes well for his playing time, I think, from uh, from here on out. We've been doing that uh, dominance disaster thing for hitters for a couple of years now. It's, it's a concept that's borrowed from the uh, PQS, pure quality starts, metrics developed for starting pitchers many, many years ago. And the idea is for hitters, as you say, we're trying to identify those guys who, who don't have a lot of terrible weeks. And I think the the idea originally was for head-to-head leagues where it's really important that you don't have a guy who runs hot and cold because uh, if you catch him on a cold week and he happens to be in your lineup, then he really hurts your chances of winning your week. But it also seems to me, Nick, that this is valuable as we come down the stretch because there are so few weeks left now that even if you're playing in a full season format, as most of us do, you still don't want to have a guy take a bad week when there's only five or six of them left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, that's why it's really important, I think, to look at those guys right now. And and in that column, there were a number of names of players. So I highly recommend the column, a number of names of players who are uh, just very consistent, not not going to blow the socks off anything, but they may be the kind of guys you want in your lineup at this point in time. 
and avoid the ones who are inconsistent, who might throw a, uh, you know, an O for 16 week at you and, and really hurt your chances in the overall. Our projection for David Peralta is for a couple of homers, couple of bags, as you said, not going to blow the doors off your league, but it's not going to hurt you either. 20 runs, 20 RBIs or thereabouts, and about a 270 batting average in 150 innings. Useful statistics from David Peralta. Nick Stephen Nickran's starting pitcher buyer's guide column this week looks at base performance value for July. A base performance value for listeners not familiar is just a kind of a compound metric using all of the skills, tools that we look at in starting pitchers. One of the names that jumped out of Steven's list for me was the Mets rookie Jacob deGrom. He's looking pretty sharp so far this year. Six wins, uh, ERA under three, 94 strikeouts in 100 innings. What's the outlook according to Steven Nickrand? Well, you know, Jacob deGrom really looks pretty good. If you look at what he did in July... Uh, Stephen indicated that he had the best swing and miss stuff of any starting pitcher in Major League Baseball. 15% swinging strike rate was the highest in the game. His uh, his 93.8 mile per hour fastball velocity in the top 15 of all starters. Uh, five pitch mix, being able to keep uh, hitters off balance. And I and Jacob Degrom is has in some leagues that I've seen kind of st- kind of sat out there for a long time on the waiver wire because it was sort of a who is this guy. Um, and, but he's pitching very, very well. Currently a 2.87 ERA, uh, our XERA of 3.51. So even if that ERA goes up a little bit, XERA says there's a, there's a, a kind of a nice, a nice, uh, a ceiling there, or nice floor there, rather. So, you know, Jacob deGrom is the sort of guy that, uh, I, I would certainly like on my team for a stretch run. The worry with Jacob deGrom, I think, has been the walks. His, his control, has not always been super, but in the last month, he's got it down under two, and as a result, his command ratio strikeouts to walks has been right around six, which is really outstanding. And I guess the question we have to wrestle with is, can he maintain that control? And usually, if a guy's put in a solid month of control, it's a pretty good sign. It is indeed. You know, if, if, it, if he manages that control at the major league level for over a solid month, there's something going right. And, uh, and, and hopefully there's a pitching coach there that if he begins to lose it can help him find whatever it is he was doing before that'll get, keep him getting the ball over the plate. One worry that I would note uh, just for the record is that he has a very low home run per fly ball rate under 10%. As a result, his home run per nine innings is only about a half a home run per game and he's not really a ground ball pitcher. So there's, uh, there's a fair number of fly balls being hit off of Jacob deGrom, and they're not finding their way over the fence, that could change. And in the short run, if it does change, could really cause an ERA spike. So take a look at it. I'm not saying don't sign this guy or don't look at him as a free agent. Certainly he has a lot of potential, but just be aware. Uh, Stephen Nickran's column also mentioned the Dodgers left-hander Hugin Ryu. He's having a terrific year, Nick. 13 wins, his ERA's uh, 321, 118 whip, and a ton of strikeouts. So what is Steven saying is the outlook for Ryu? Ryu is really a very attractive target for the stretch run, I think. The kind of guy you might want to trade for. And certainly his if he were on any other team, with uh, didn't have a Clayton Kershaw ahead of him, who's getting all the press, uh, Ryu is somebody who might be on everybody's lips. But at this point, uh, for a guy who's pitching as well as he is, he actually has the... Uh, the best base skills uh, in the National League during uh, the month of July. Uh, 10.2 DOM rate, 176 BPB, 49% ground ball rate. Uh, a little bit of an elevated hit rate and a, and a low strand rate kind of got kept his ERA uh, a tiny bit inflated for the month. I mean, 3.57, that's certainly not what we'd call an inflated ERA. But he had one out, one bad outing, I think, in July in which he sort of, uh, sort of blew up things, and, and that may... 
uh, a, a outing against Detroit on the 8th of July when he gave up seven earned runs in two and a third innings, and, and that certainly uh, pushes ERA up. So uh, certainly a guy I would, would want on my team and a guy to take a look at, and, and maybe you could pick him up in a trade, uh, uh, in a trade effort, uh, but someone who would be very worthwhile, I think, to have on your team for the stretch run. Our projection for you is four more wins, similar sort of ERA, a 321, 320, somewhere around there, and he's full value for it on his expected ERA. His whip should remain around the same, nicely low at 118 or thereabouts, and he's going to get you 44 strikeouts in 50 innings, not too uh, shabby either. Finally, Nick Bullpen's columnist Doug Dennis at BaseballHQ.com looks at relievers who have what he calls closer-worthy skill sets. And a name to notice in that list, I thought, was the Phillies' Jake Diekman. All of the scuttlebutt before the deadline, the assumption being that John Papelbon would be traded, was about Ken Giles, the relief pitcher. So who is this Jake Diekman? Well, Jake Diekman is a, is a lefty in the Phillies' bullpen. 51 appearances at this point, three wins, three losses, 4.26 ERA, but an XERA of 2.88 at a 147 BPV. Uh, a terrific swinging strike rate at 15%, 12.8 DOM. So here is a guy who really is is performing well. You know, the interesting thing I found about that entire column of Doug Dennis's is that one thing you may think about at, at, at this point in some leagues is if you're in a good, sh- good shape in terms of ERA and whip, you may want to preserve that ERA and whip. And if you're close to having whatever number of innings it is you need to make it through the season and, and qualify in those categories, there are a lot of, of good relievers out there, probably on your waiver wire, who can help you maintain ERA and whip especially if you want to drop this, your kind of questionable starters at the bottom of the rotation, pick up a reliever who may be able to maintain and help your ERA and whip just a little bit. That's the thing that I found really, really valuable about this particular column of Doug Dennis's because there are a ton of guys that he's identified who may help in that way. And also some potential closes in waiting for next season. I, I agree with the, the tactic of taking on good relievers for ERA and whip benefit and dropping some of your poor starters um, cause even, even though you might be competitive in wins, a bad starter is no guarantee of wins and a, and a decent relief pitcher who gets into high leverage situations could actually get more wins than a bad starter. My concern here is that when I look at Jake Diekman, I don't see a ton of ERA and whip help. His ERA right now is over four. His whips around 135. Those are not the kind of numbers that are going to really help you. Or if they are, you need more help than uh, Jake Diekman's going to provide as far as the category is concerned. And our projection is it's lower than that, but it's still not great. So uh, I agree with what you say about picking up relievers to protect your ERA. Just don't assume that Jake Diekman, just because his name is on the list, is one of those guys. Yeah, I think, you know, take a good look at what's there. I mean, what we're saying with Jake Diekman is there are, there are terrific skills out there that have been there consistently throughout the season at a BPV of, of, of 200 for the past month. So, but you're right. Take a good look at what's going on and uh, before you before you jump on these sorts of things. And it's a good time also to look at monthly splits uh, and, and to see how if, if their guy if these guys have actually improved as the season went on. And that's certainly a thing to look at uh, with uh, with someone like uh, like Jake Diekman. He's 26 years old. He's been in the league since June only. Uh, so, you know, he might be finding his way. One one positive sign for Diekman is 
at any time split you look at, his expected ERA is well under three. And so he has been suffering a bit of bad luck, maybe nerves, you know, first time in the big leagues and all that sort of thing. And as he gets more experience, that could get straightened out. Uh, not a bad bet if you're gambling a little bit, but uh, certainly not a sure thing for the stretch run, uh, as I said. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, plenty of roster activity going on in the American League East this past week, right after the trade deadline. It was covered pretty extensively by Matt Dodge in playing time today, and Dave Adler got to it a little bit in facts and flukes as well. So let's start off by looking at Boston. Shane Victorino done for the year with back surgery. Alan Craig, who they just got in trade, goes on the 15-day DL. He's got a foot problem. When you add all this up, it looks like there should be plenty of free time, especially when you consider Brock Holt can play outfield in third, But then Boston has also activated Kelly Johnson, who they got from the Yankees, and he can play outfield in third as well, maybe a little second. How how in the world is all this going to shake out? That's a really good question, uh, PD. Uh, Holt obviously uh, should benefit given his terrific season and the fact that uh, he can play outfield or he can play all over the place in third base. Although Holt has been slumping lately. He's 11 for his last 57. He's had a sub-200 batting average since July 22, so... I would be surprised if some things are catching up to him. I, I, I frankly don't get Kelly Johnson in Boston, though I realize his acquisition was a result of the, the Drew salary dump. I'm not sure how much time he gets or whether they want to see if he can play his way into a quick trade. Uh, as, as Matt notes, the, uh, he's a left-handed hitter, and he hasn't hit for average in a long time, and it seems as though his power will decline in Fenway Park away from that Yankee Stadium short porch. Um, but but as we were discussing here last week, Mookie Betts seems to be the immediate loser, particularly since he was demoted again to AAA to make room for Johnson. Um, he should be back in September um, when rosters expand. And uh, as you and I were talking before this segment began, this Boston roster and, and, and the fantasy impact is interesting because you just don't know who's going to play down the stretch here. Yeah, that's exactly right. They have a lot of things they need to do. And uh, boy, if I had a lot of Boston guys on my roster and could do something about it, I do have Boston guys on my roster in Tout Wars, uh, including Mike Napoli, Dustin Pedroia. Uh, I, I think that maybe they could be in a little trouble as far as playing time is concerned because Boston has no incentive to let these guys play at this point. They, they want to get a look at Betts, obviously, in September. I would think it would be in their best interest to get a look at him at, at second base and give other teams a look at him if uh, if he's a potential trade piece, given given Pedroia's contact. Uh, and what are they going to do in center field? You've got Jackie Bradley, just terrible offensively. And, uh, in fact, he may be a big winner of, of Betts being sent down, given that he no longer has to look over his shoulder at Betts taking uh, at bats away from him against left-handed pitching. But then again, if you own Bradley in a fantasy league, you may not be the winner because he's been awful. (laughs) Yeah, to be charitable. And uh, with the trade of John Lester, uh, the uh, rotation is not that strong. Either Lackey's gone from there as well, so they're going to be auditioning a lot of pitchers in there. This looks like a team that if you're playing daily games, you're playing the Chandler Park monthly games, or even in regular season, full season fantasy formats, I think you want to be streaming your hitters and your pitchers against Boston wherever possible. Yeah, really well said. That pitching staff doesn't look any more stable than the position players uh, playing time does going down the stretch here. Speaking of Boston, uh, 
Dave Adler in Wednesday's Facts and Flukes column covered Mike Napoli, and the idea there was that Mike Napoli has simply stopped hitting for power. What does Dave Adler say is going on here, other than the fact that Mike Napoli, as I mentioned, is on my Tout Wars roster? Well, Dave put up a uh, five-year chart with this piece, and it shows Napoli hitting ground balls at a 44% clip, which is a five-year high for him, and that's one of the reasons his power has uh, has gone down. Now, it, now it hasn't disappeared. Um, He's, uh, he's hit 13 homers this year, and we got to remember Napoli is a really streaky guy. If he's not hurt and he gets some playing time, it wouldn't totally surprise to see him hit for power down the stretch. But as we were saying in the, in the previous segment, you just don't know um, how much he's going to play, and you don't know whether there's an injury involved that's, that's making him hit these ground balls either. He had a finger injury early, earlier in the year. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty here. There is a lot. A lot of uncertainty with Mike Napoli, and uh, of course we're at the stage of the year where in many leagues there's not a lot you can do about it. Trade deadlines have passed. You're certainly not going to drop Mike Napoli to pick up what's available on the free agent wire, so you kind of just have to cross your fingers and hope for the best, I guess. The Yankees uh, sent David Phelps, a starting pitcher, to the DL. He's got elbow problems, always a bad sign, and that means they've given Chris Capuano three straight starts, and he's actually done pretty well. He even shut out Detroit, which is tough to do for six and two-thirds, and got eight strikeouts. Do you think it's time to actually take a realistic look at Chris Capuano? Well, Dave Adler also did a piece on Capuano probably based on the three starts and the fact that he's in, he's in the Yankee rotation right now. And uh, Dave points out some, some interesting things. First off, Capuano's control has, has been off all year. He's, he's averaging almost four walks per nine innings. And he is still an extreme uh, non-ground ball pitcher. He's got a 30% line drive rate, 30% fly ball rate. That's not a particularly good combination in, uh, in Yankee Stadium. Now, he's always had good stuff, and he's always uh, struck out a fair amount of hitters. So at least in the short term, uh, these past three games, he's done the job, and he's going to be there. But I guess the point I'm making is that he's a risk. So if you're going to roster Capuano and start him, uh, be prepared for some bumps. One thing I noticed about Capuano when I was looking at his stats this year is that over the last uh, 31 days or so when he's uh, been in the lineup, his ground ball rate has actually shot up to 45% and his fly ball rate is way down to 29 So that does give you a little confidence or a little comfort in the idea that maybe there's going to be a few less home runs flying out of the yard just because there's so many less uh, fly balls going up in the air. However... His line drive rate, as you mentioned, is uh, right around 30%, and that hasn't changed at all in the last little while. And when you're giving up 30% line drives, man, that's a, that's a ticket to nowheresville. Yeah, that, that's a real red flag, and, 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 and good point on the, on the short-term uh, um, blips, what you're seeing there. If he can maintain that, obviously that's why he's doing better uh, recently, he, is that he is getting more ground balls. The question is whether he'll maintain. It's a question that Baseball HQ seems to be answering with a resounding no. The projection is for eight more games, no quality starts, an ERA of in the fours, 430 or so. Um, altogether, it's a nice story while it lasts, but boy, it doesn't look like it can last that much longer. This is an example of if you're sixth and you've got to do something, anything to try to get some wins points, maybe get some strikeouts, then... If there's nothing better, you might as well grab them. But, boy, if you're protecting any kind of a lead or protecting any kind of position, I think you need to look elsewhere or even carry a dead spot on your roster. Uh, a little earlier, 
Jock, I talked with Harold Nichols about the latest bullpen buyer's guide. Our columnist Doug Dennis at Baseball HQ identifies a bunch of pitchers who have what he calls closer-worthy skill sets. What were some of the -the under-the-radar names that caught your eye? Well, the guys I really liked are names like uh, Danny Farquhar and uh, Dominic Leone from Seattle, whose bullpen I've been able to watch up up close and personal out here on the West Coast. Uh, These are really good pitchers, and of course, they're behind a volatile closer like Rodney. Leone is interesting. He's pretty much come from nowhere, and uh, he's been terrific all season. You and I talked about Brad Boxberger earlier this year, and he's behind the lefty McGee, so I like him a lot, and he's, he's really been pitching really well lately too he's he seems to have finally gotten over his uh his gopheritis blues which was the only blemish on his record and uh if mcgee ever stumbles he's going to be a logical choice uh there kevin jepson is another guy i've watched close obviously being in in southern california and jepson has had the best year he's had throughout his entire career now the one thing i worry about on jepson is that I think he's been overworked. He's made 54 appearances, which might be a high on this list, although Doug, Doug is dealing with the innings pitched and not the appearances. Um, the Angel bullpen has been uh, overworked, and I think Jepson may be due for a, um, um, a letdown. But uh, there's an awful lot of talent on this list. There is, and in a lot of league formats, these are guys who are not going to be rostered. They're going to be available in your free agent pool. Of the guys you mentioned, I think Brad Boxberger is the most intriguing guy. Uh, the last 31 days, a 59% ground ball rate, which is uh, obviously a high for him in a big way, and he's getting lots of strikeouts, 14.2 per nine innings for the year. A ton of strikeouts, a ton of ground balls. This is exactly what you need if you're building a bullpen. Now, having said that, I don't think Jake McGee is in any immediate danger of losing the role, but I also believe that Tampa is going to be willing to throw different guys out there, especially if they should happen to fall out of the race. Yeah, they've done that, and it's amazing what Tampa Bay does every year. There always seems to be one or two guys in their bullpen, guys they picked up from other teams that they salvage and, and help turn into world beaters, and Boxberger's just a recent name. He's just been terrific this year. Baseball HQ projecting just one save down the stretch, so if you're thinking that it's a gamble you might want to take to pick up some saves, maybe look somewhere else, uh, unless you know something about Jake McGee that nobody else knows. In the uh, Playing Time Tomorrow column on Wednesday, Bob Berger was looking at the American League Central, and he had some ideas about Minnesota's roster moves of late, the chief one being they called up Kenneth Vargas, a big, hulking DH. Geez, have you seen this guy? He looks more like a like a tight end or, a, or a, maybe even a power forward in, in the NBA. He's huge. And they've traded away, of course, Kendris Morales is gone. They claimed Jordan Schaefer off waivers, and they traded Sam Fuld. Is there any fantasy value here anywhere? Yeah, I, I think there's some value in, in Vargas longer term um, with, with some caveats. Like you said, uh, Vargas is a big guy. He's got weight issues, um, good power and patience, and he's really improved his contact this year, which has um, um, impressed a lot of people in Minnesota and outside of Minnesota. I think because of his defense and his weight, he probably has a DH uh, long-term future. In the short term, it sounds like Minnesota is committed to playing him. Uh, Ron Gardenhire was quoted as saying uh, when Maurer comes back next week, uh, in, to, in response to the question uh, as to whether Vargas may be sent down or not, uh, Gardenhire said, only if they send me down with him. So I think there's a plan to play him. He's shown flashes in his first 25 at-bats. He's got a 280 batting average and a 131 PX despite 65% contact rate. So he's not looking overmatched yet.
I think this Vargas guy could be the next coming of David Ortiz. He reminds me of Ortiz in his appearance. For a while, he was even modeling his swing on Ortiz. And of course, David Ortiz, a long time ago under the name David Arias, was a Minnesota Twins DH. No, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm. It's, it's hard for me to project anyone as the next coming of David Ortiz, but, uh, but Vargas has some potential, and I don't think anyone should sell, should sell him short. He has. He's a switch hitter with no splits against either right-handed or left-handed pitcher. He has good patience. Um, he has some talent. The question is whether Minnesota can bring it out. And one advantage he has over David Ortiz, of course, a switch hitter, which means that he's not going to be presumably quite as vulnerable to left-handed pitching as Ortiz was at the early part of his career, although he picked it up a little in the later part. Now, what about Jordan Schaefer? My comments on Schaefer come with a bit of a caveat in that I play in deep leagues, so I'm always looking for fringe players, and I have that mentality, like, for instance, Kevin Kiermeyer, who we talked about oh gosh, over a month ago, and who I liked and has, has done very well since. Schaefer is essentially a poor man's Jared Dyson. If you check the stolen base totals, they're very similar. He runs when he gets on. His speed indices are similar. His batting average and contact are issues, though. He, he doesn't quite have the same uh, skill in that area that Dyson has, and Dyson isn't that skilled there. Obviously, Aaron Hicks and 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 another year out, Byron Buxton are going to take over center field in Minnesota soon enough leaving Schaefer with minimal short-term value for now. But if you're looking for speed, when Jordan Schaefer gets on, he's probably going to run. He's already stolen two bases in two games with, uh, with Minnesota. He's playing center field every day, at least until they bring up Hicks. Um, if, uh, if you're looking for speed down the stretch, uh, Jordan Schaefer might be worth a flyer. I'm starting to wonder if Byron Buxton's ever going to play in the big leagues. He just seems never to be able to, to keep his health together. Yeah, that's an interesting call. I still think he's pretty young. I, I, I don't think he's even 22 yet. He just turned 21. Um, he's had some wrist injuries this year. Most people still think he's the number one prospect in baseball, and I hope they're right because I own him on one of my fantasy teams. Yeah, there, there, there's uh, when, when a prospect is young and has had some issues, I think you have to say that the potential outcomes for that player are virtually infinite. He could be a guy who never plays in the big leagues. He could come up to the big leagues and be maybe not the next Mickey Mantle, but you know maybe the next uh, Jason Hayward, somebody like that. I think the thing that really keeps uh, Byron Buxton interesting is he has plus-plus speed, and it, it's already translated into a running game that could work at the MLB level, and his defense will work at the MLB level. And when you have that, you will get playing time. He still has, I mean, there's, there's questions about his power, um, people don't know how many home runs he'll he'll hit, um, but he makes decent contact. He's got good patience. Um, he's probably, if he's healthy, he's probably not as far away from playing with the Twins as some people think. And just returning briefly to Vargas, you know, I mentioned David Arias, as he was then called, and the Twins made a really horrendous error in his development. They let him sit at AAA where he was slugging 550 or something like that because they wanted him to work on, I don't know, fielding or his uh, attitude or something like that. And, and they let one of the great hitters of our generation leave town. And sometimes it seems to me that Minnesota has that old-fashioned idea that if you can't do everything, we won't let you do anything. You know, and it's kind of like uh, saying, uh, you know, turning down Kate Upton for a date because she doesn't make a decent enough omelet. 
Yeah, I, I think all organizations and teams have or have had their blind spots at times. And, and obviously, releasing David Ortiz was, was a huge mistake. Um, I, you know, I mean, just look at this past year. Look at uh, uh, J.D. Martinez. Uh, you talk about a team that needs hitting, and Houston let him go, even though um, uh, the word was out about him retooling his swing all winter long. You know, people talked about that. He came into spring training, apparently didn't show them enough. They, they bring him over to Detroit, a, a, a contending team, and all of a sudden he's an everyday player. Let's go to our lightning round, Jock. A couple of notes. Uh, Matt Dodge reported about the Toronto Blue Jays. They finally got Brett Lorry back. He managed to get all of one game in from his finger injury. Then he strained his oblique back on the DL. He probably won't be back until late September, if at all. What does this mean? And please tell me it's not more Munanori Kawasaki. Well, it sounds like, at least according to Matt, that it, uh, that it is more Munanori uh, Kawasaki. And um, obviously, from a fantasy standpoint, uh, between Kawasaki and Ryan Goins, who, are gonna, who look like they're going to share second base and third base for a little while, um, 252 at-bats, one home run, zero steals, and a, and a 250 beat batting average, that's not going to help you very much. And as, we, as you and I talked before this segment, uh, Toronto's uh, heading to Seattle next week, and that's not going to help their hitters. Boy, I'll tell you something else that's not going to help their hitters. That whole uh, next uh, few games for Toronto is terrible. It starts uh, with Detroit. They face Sanchez, Scherzer, and Price. Then they go to Seattle for a road trip, which is already not the most pleasant thing to do. And uh, get this, they start with Felix Hernandez, and they get Chris Young, who might be the soft touch of the entire week, and then uh, they close out with Iwakuma. So, boy, oh boy, we talked about starting everybody you can against Boston, this might be an excellent week to sit everybody you can on the Blue Jays. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, Seattle's, I've, I've watched Seattle's pitching staff, both their starters and relievers, up close and personal here. And uh, they lead the American League in, in, major, in uh, ERA. I think they lead baseball in ERA, although I'm not sure about that last one. But uh, they're awfully tough. And, of course, they're, they think that they're in a, a playoff race it could be that they are, you know, it's it seems like a long shot, frankly, but, you know, they're not a million miles out of the wild card, and they have a great incentive to beat Toronto because Toronto's in that wild card race with them. Yeah, that should be a good series. Uh, hopefully Toronto will get some sleep uh, heading out here to the West Coast because, uh, as, we saw, as we saw with Atlanta in the National League just this past uh, week and a half, they lost eight in a row coming out here, and it's not always a great trip for East Coast teams. Yeah, Toronto's not exactly on the East Coast, so it's not as brutal of a trip as it might be for, say, you know, New York or Boston. It'll probably save you 45 minutes or an hour on the flight, I'm not sure. But I wanted to bring the attention uh, to the attention of our listeners, Jock. One of the players on Toronto you'd think you always want to start is Jose Bautista. And I can tell you from watching a lot of Toronto games on TV, because we live close to there, Jose Bautista does not look like a happy camper. And he he was fairly aggressive in sending out a tweet after the trade deadline that the team had done nothing. And it seems to be affecting how he's playing on the field. His on-base percentage, which has been hovering around 400 all year for the last week, 360. His walk rate, which has been around 16%, down to 8%. He's swinging at everything. His contact rate, down from 83% to 72%. This is a guy who's in a funk. And I don't know that I'd be real 
100% certain that he's a guy I want playing for me while he's in that funk. Well, particularly next week and the week after if, if he's got to go up against Detroit and Seattle pitching. And finally, Jock, Tom Kephart wrote about Cleveland and they recently dropped both Danny Salazar and Josh Tomlin from their pitching rotation and gave a start to Carlos Carrasco. He's had great numbers, but that was in relief. Can we expect anything new from Carlos Carrasco rejoining the starting rotation? You and I have always been big fans of Carlos Carrasco's stuff, but it seems like every time he gets this kind of an opportunity and the lights come on him, he wilts. Uh, that's a real good question. He's been great in relief, uh, 39 to 9 strikeout to walk ratio and a 230 ERA in 43 innings. But it just seems like when, whenever he gets that starting role or whenever something becomes uh, a little more high leverage, the situation becomes more critical, he, uh, he has problems. He's a, he's a guy you, you can't give up on because of the stuff, but uh, I sure wouldn't be rushing to activate him in his first start if I was trying to protect my ERA or whip. I agree with you. I like Carlos Carrasco, always have, but I'm starting to think that maybe relief is his best role and maybe the way he can add the most fantasy value for the rest of his career might be as a closer rather than as a starter. Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. I had fun as usual. Good. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up, it's our regular talk with Todd. Stay tuned. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Playing fantasy baseball is about having fun, so have more fun more often with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. One Month Games offer the best of both worlds, the fast action and excitement of daily games, with the strategy and tactics of full-season formats. You draft your team using set salaries, all based on player performance. Then you set your roster twice a week, playing matchups in hot hands. Best of all, one bad month doesn't sink your whole season. And a fast start puts you in the money that much quicker. More fantasy fun, more often, with One Month Fantasy Games at ChandlerPark.com. This is Ron Chandler, Monthly Fantasy Baseball. More drafts, more pennant races, more fantasy fun more often. Give it a try. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. You want to keep your eyes open this week at BaseballHQ.com and look for these features. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column, Part 1, noting the 20th anniversary of when fantasy baseball went dark. It's a really good report, well-written and well-told. It's funny, too. It's it's funny and sad. It's really good. In our daily call-ups reports, our crack minor league staff are looking at Javier Baez of the Cubs, Jake Lamb of the Diamondbacks, Boston relief pitcher Heath Hembry, and many more. Lots of big names coming up. You want to find out what you can about them. And Todd Zola's Roto Strategy article is called Down the Stretch They Come. We'll be talking with Todd about that in just a second. It's about the importance of working hard and hustling at this stage of the season. Plus, we have all our regular features, daily analysis of changes in playing time. That's happening a lot now, too. Performance validation in facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, pitcher matchups reports every day, and much more. All on the site now are coming up at BaseballHQ.com. And now it is time for our regular Talk with Todd, and it is a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, ESPN, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. I can't believe it's August already. It is August, and uh, as we like to call it, if you're in the hunt, it's the stretch, or it's the start of the stretch, I guess, uh, rounding the clubhouse turn in the parlance of the track. Uh, you had a, an article recently... Uh, about the stretch and how to manage it. And I think the takeaway from it was 
got to be prepared to buckle down because now's the time when uh, the winners are going to shake themselves free. Yeah, it's been we've we've worked hard for four months. Maybe had less distractions, you know, going back to school and all that sort of stuff with with, with your kids and all that kind of thing going on. Uh, vacations are over. Uh, you worked real hard for four months. Let you know it's not going to go to waste. Go to a you know another couple months of hard work. Uh, maybe the opponents aren't working as hard, and you can gain an edge in that manner. Or maybe they've sort of uh, tuned out and are focusing on some other fantasy sports they may or may not be starting at this point of the season. So, yeah, this is a, a time, I think, that you uh, hard work, especially because information is has the playing field of information is leveled again and we're kind of full circle we swung back to hard work as being the determining factor in a lot of leagues i thought that was an interesting point you made in the article todd uh, maybe you could expand on it a bit uh, it started with the pre-internet days when you really had to work hard yeah well it was i mean it was just kind of a it, we're talking about a a piece i wrote recently this week for baseball hq for baseball hq subscribers and that it, i just kind of was opening in and in, in, Back in the day, you know, stars and scrubs when the people, I knew more than, I knew the stars and I paid attention so I knew the scrubs. That was really all it took to win fantasy leagues at the very, very beginning was you didn't necessarily have to know the swing strike percent or, or what BABIP was or, you know, you know, hard hit line drives and all that sort of stuff. It was just knowing who was playing. And then that became fairly commonplace with the internet everybody knew the lineups and and all that sort of stuff and then you know then some guy named Chandler came around and taught us all these statistics and that's how we got our edge was was being the advanced analysis uh, of the numbers to be able to evaluate the players better so we kind of got an edge that way and then you know that's now become fairly mainstream if not mainstream so now I think we're back to information again, and it's all out there. I mean, with Twitter and everything else, it's all out there. So it's not necessarily how much you work. I think what I said in this when this thing was the old expression that your boss always used to tell you is, uh, you know, don't work harder, work smarter. Well, I don't know if it's don't work harder. I think you should have to still have to work hard. It should be don't work longer, work smarter, work more efficient, work just as hard, but make it more efficient. And you should be get get more of a bang for the buck and uh, take home your fantasy championship. I think that's a really interesting point, and I know that a lot of the discussion in the industry and among uh, serious fantasy players is where is that next information edge going to come from? I know I've talked with Ron Chandler about this, and we've we've wondered about the uh, influence of game theory. How do you manage the auction? What do we know about behavioral economics? All of these things that are getting more and more detailed about smaller and smaller pieces of the puzzle. And of course, the inevitable result will be somebody will figure out something about here's the sort of sure way to run your auction, for instance, or to run your snake draft by calibrating what everybody else is doing. And they'll get an edge for what, one cycle, maybe one draft, then somebody else will find out about it. Or one of us will turn a dollar writing about it. And next thing you know, everybody knows about it. And there, poof, goes that information advantage. And on we go. Right. I think the other, another possible avenue is it's not just with the daily games, but with lineup changes being more frequent. I think as more data is introduced into the, uh, into the landscape and we can get a better handle on micro projection of players, 
I think that you know if the last if the last big thing was the macro projection over the year, I think if we can get a better handle on the micro projection, you know, for 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 the Chandler Park monthly game, let alone you know a lot of fantasy leagues now go to daily, not just I'm talking daily games, but traditional fantasy leagues with daily moves. Uh, and we're going to need, you know, we still need more data and, and the ability to analyze it to see if there's anything there. But I think that might be another another step coming in the future is as, you know, the pitch FX and hit FX and the speed of the ball off the bat and all that kind of stuff. We, we don't know. We, we don't know what we don't know yet. But we know that it's coming, and next week I'll be talking with Corey Schwartz, our mutual friend from Major League Baseball Advanced Media, and um, he, they've got a lot of cool new tools, Todd, out there. Boy, it is getting super interesting, and we are finding out about ball off the bat speed and, and those kind of things, which is really going to add to our information uh, advantage. But again, it's only going to be temporary because within a year it'll just be part of everybody's spreadsheet, and you'll be able to rank them by uh, hardness of hit miles per hour or whatever and whatever advantage we glean in the year that that information becomes available to us the advantage will be lost to us within one cycle as i said yeah that's that's the other part of it is it did take without the internet it took longer for the mainstream to catch up with whatever that niche analysis was you're right i don't know if it's going to be a year it might take a you know i guess it depends upon the level of play and what we're actually talking about but um but we have to be careful too. It's just because something works one year doesn't mean it's going to work the next with injuries and, 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 and major league baseball is changing. We may, we may have something with hard hit data, but with the increased use of the shifts, who knows if it'll be applicable? I mean, it's a completely transient situation. It's going to be real difficult to stay ahead of it, but that's why we're here. We're going to give it a shot. And it's fun, too, to think about how do all these moving parts interact and how does the the movement towards shifts you mentioned, how does that affect the ability of teams to, to make outs and, and how do the teams who are being shifted against respond? Do they finally convince David Ortiz to start slapping the ball to left field and all of a sudden he hits 370 or something like that because he's, you know, he could bunt his way to 330 at this rate because he could, you know, if he gets it in play anywhere between home and third, he's going to be able to, you know, walk to first base without having to worry about a throw because there's nobody there to throw it. So the, uh, the constant give and take and ebb and flow in actual baseball is certainly going to have an effect on everything that we think about in fantasy baseball. Yeah, and that's going to—that's the thing. And, and the information is all out there. And like you said, there's no more secrets. Todd, what did we learn, if anything, from the uh, post-trade fab bidding and expert leagues for crossover players? Pretty good crop this year of guys switching leagues. Again, we you know with the caveat then, who knows what's going to happen next year, especially in the American League, where. It literally for four or five straight weeks, there was someone of consequence available with the, with the scattering of the trades. I did, um, I do it for the, the, the fab reports for, for Masters Ball. What I did was I took all the moves and lumped them together and sorted them by the price they cost. You know, in my head, I sort of had a preconceived notion of, their, you know, in, you know, air quotes value, how much they should be paid for. And I find it, you know, I found it interesting that, what the cost was over the course of five weeks was fairly close to what you, you, you know, if I had just said, Hey, line these up and, and, you know, guess how much fab it took. It'd be pretty darn close. I don't know if that's a surprise or not, 
you know, it just means that the, you know, the, whoever was leading in fab got the player and we had a new fab leader the next week and the next week and the next week. But it did, it was somewhat interesting to me how they did slot in, uh, ranking according to what I would expect. Now, the difference being the, the person who picked up Jeff Sabarja earlier got him for three more weeks than, you know, the person that may have picked up the, you know, the player that came over at the deadline. So the actual worth to the team may have been different if you want to do a, a comparative at the end of the year. How much did you get value-wise versus how much you paid? That lift may, that list may shift a little bit. I don't know. But, um, I thought I just, it was more of a, you know, mental exercise because just out of curiosity than anything else. Um, I'm still, I think whether to pay or not to pay is still completely team dependent. Uh, you know, NL, I don't want to say they got burned this year if they waited because there were some players that came over at the end. But, you know, if you didn't address your team early in the National League when you had the chance, you, you probably fell behind the eight ball and, and didn't get the help you needed at the deadline to, to make any ground up. I've always thought that looking at any other league than the one you're in to try to get a handle on how much to bid for Fab is a fool's exercise. But I think the the idea that I want to see who got the biggest bid in any other league is not because the amount bid is depends on so many factors within your league and with who's got the most fab, who's got multiple opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that in, uh, in experts leagues that Jeff Samarja was a really the top dollar guy is a pretty good indication to rank and file fantasy players out there who are looking to these experts leagues for some kind of, uh, advice, shall we say, could take that to the bank. They could think, well, these guys had an opportunity to bid heavily on a lot of different guys, but in uh, in this case, they went with Samarja, partially because of the early advantage, as you mentioned, but for other reasons as well. And I think that's something we can learn from. Right, the relative value of the players, and you know, as a, you know, sort of to pimp the reports a little bit. Within the reports, you can click on the heading and you can get right to the league. So you can actually investigate the standings and investigate the rosters and take it to the next level and not just, you know, you may say to yourself, uh, you know, geez, why did, you know, Houston Street only go for X dollars, you know, when he's one of the only closers available and you see that, well, um, you know, there's really nobody that had any fab money that could gain in saves or something like that. Right. So if you really want to take it to the next level, you, you can do that. Uh, with, you know, within each of the leagues, but you're right. I mean, and individually, a league is so dependent. Although, what I one thing I am going to do, and I, I I hinted at it in the in the piece, and this is more you know an off season kind of kind of thing, is I'm curious comparing the labor and the tout, one's victory and one's not, just the the the, the totals of of fab each week and and how that influences bidding and does Vickery because part of me wonders does Vickery even matter or in the end of the day does it all come out sort of the same but we were just paying different amounts for the same people I mean was it just the end result everybody got who they were going to get and the amounts you know were a little bit higher in this league a little lower in this league you know you know is labor now going to be paying less money for the same player than Tout Wars is because of Vickery, but at the end of the day, you get the same players anyway. Which, you know, I'm not saying that's for or against Vickery itself, but I wonder if it's, uh, if, if it's kind of a, a wash across the board and it's kind of like much ado about nothing, the same thing would happen either way. I should explain for listeners who may not be familiar with the Vickery method, it's a bidding method where the, it's a blind auction as most fab bids are. 
But if you win the auction, you don't pay what you bid. You pay what the second place guy bid plus a dollar. And so you can uh, manipulate that to a certain extent. Todd, I know uh, a few years ago uh, when I was looking at auction dynamics when I was uh, writing for Baseball HQ on topics like that, and the academic research in uh, into auctions seems to suggest that the method you choose doesn't really matter in the long run, that, that prices tend to get settled by the market and, uh, and and whether you use Vickery or or some other method to adjust the amount paid doesn't actually take that much effect. I don't know if that would apply in in uh, fantasy baseball because most of the studies about blind bidding were done on oil leases and things like that, which are which have different dynamics. Yeah, and, and again, I don't know that it's. I'm not gonna, you know, put up a fight. Let's get rid of Vickery or let's add Vickery to labor. But um, the other thing I find is the more I just kind of arbitrarily decide to look at something I what I usually end up doing is, is finding a side project that's end up to be more important than the original one which is uh you know which is where I get I feel I get my edge either as a writer or as a player so the more work you do you know you don't know if it'll go to waste you know we uh it's uh you know the offshoot even if sometimes it's just in the discussion you have with somebody about something in the comment section of an article you get an idea for a future study. Oh yeah, that's for sure. And uh, at Baseball HQ, the subscriber forums, people raise all kinds of interesting questions. And I like to answer, if somebody makes an assertion or a proposition, uh, you know, I wonder if kind of kind of thing, and it's not that big of a deal. I'll look into it and usually I'll just put it in the in the into that actual message thread if it doesn't take more than 15 minutes or so to kind of gin up a quick spreadsheet because I've got the spreadsheets anyway, right? <laughs> we, right? We all keep our spreadsheets from our research, and so you have these basic raw databases that you can mine into pretty quickly. But I'd say three or four times a year, those those um, message threads at BaseballHQ.com's forums, and I'm sure the same is true in message threads all over the place, raise questions that you can't answer that quickly, but they're super interesting questions to look into, and I've certainly been inspired that way. Right. I mean, it's, you know, I feel the same way when I go out to the first pitch forum tours there's nothing like you know what's important to me might not be important to everybody else and and i i find whenever I, you know for instance i'm presenting some data for for chandler park and these charts would be how i would use what i want to set my lineups in chandler park but once i put them out there i'm getting some feedback well I, I, you know, can you add this or I don't understand why you're doing it this way. Why don't you do it this way instead? And, you know, if it's not that hard of a, a switch and it can, you know, I can still get my information from it. If the masses want it one way, I'm not going to force you into doing it my way. So yeah, absolutely. You know, everybody's wired a little bit differently. Uh, so, you know, stuff like that is, uh, I, it, it's my favorite part. It's why, you know, it's why I do the, the first pitch forums and, and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, uh, a brief uh, plug for the First Pitch Arizona Fall Forum down in uh, Phoenix, late October, early November, I think this year around the 3rd of November, whatever that weekend is. It's a great opportunity for that kind of conversation to take place all the time. Uh, everybody I know who goes, we're, they're always asking each other questions. What about this? What about that? And certainly a lot of inspiration for figuring stuff out from there. Plus you get to sit in the sun and watch baseball. It, it's a, uh, I, I don't mean to make it sound like a plug, but it's a fantastic thing for sure. Uh, Todd, you had a master's ball column recently in which you outlined four factors that fantasy owners should be looking at in choosing players for the stretch. What were the four factors? 
Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to name the same four factors, but um, thinking about uh, the one that I'm going to uh, – playing time is the most important at this point. Uh, and, the, you know, I've heard you, when you talk with uh, Lar Michaels a little while back about playing on a, on a team that's competing or – on a, on a team that's going to shut a guy down like the Red Sox to look at some of the rookies, that sort of thing. Uh, playing time is paramount at this point. Just you know, look ahead, figure out your roster, make sure you're not going to have any shutdowns in September uh, for the health risks, all that sort of thing. Try to hedge away from health or get the backup. If you if you got two Lewiski, don't throw away you know Jeff, Josh Rutledge, things like that. So to me, playing time and all the associated factors with it is probably the most important thing right now it's always the most important but i think it becomes even more so now because you have less time to make up for a lack of innings or a lack of at bats a lack of counting stats as it were so that's my first on that same topic uh you mentioned that not only playing time in terms of pure counting at bats for uh, for batters but also the possibility that because of this process we want to look at our guys we want to shut down a guy because he's got a nagging injury we're going nowhere etc because of that there can be moves within the team in the batting order that can really benefit a player or hurt him yep absolutely um hmm, now that i'm looking i do have the exact same four uh uh jotted down the same four upside down uh, the same four uh uh thing so we're going to be good here yeah no uh, you know someone like leonis martin in texas with all the players if he's hitting second or hitting seventh can make a big difference zach cozart out in cincinnati between you know second and seventh um uh, and Geraldton simmons in atlanta uh the red sox order in such flux who's going to hit where right the difference and not just the number of, of plate appearances but in the national league if you're first or second or you're eighth it's huge as far as just are you going to steal or are they going to walk you to get to the pitcher? Are you going to have the the ability, you know, to rack up the counting stats in the American League? You know, if you're hitting seventh or eighth in a good lineup, you know, Chase Headley is probably hitting sixth or seventh in the New York lineup if no one's hurt. And that's still probably better than hitting third in San Diego. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's sort of the thing. And this is what I'm talking about, too. We talked about at the beginning as far as as far as working harder. This is where you might be able to get your edge. And the information is out there. You can borrow from the daily games that post lineups every day and have sites that track lineups. You can borrow from them and take a look at the the, the lineups for the past several days, and you might see something that, oh, geez, Danny Santana, he's leading off now? I didn't realize that. And, you know, who wants a guy from, you know, from the Twins? But you, you may want the leadoff hitter from the Twins. And the next factor, I think you mentioned it briefly, is health. You got to be very concerned about players who have inconsistent health records in the past, but also who are in that position where some kind of nagging injury and the team says, hey, we're finished fourth with him or without him. We might as well let him rest and get him off to a good start next season. Especially if, I mean, we'll use the example of Dustin Pedroia, who, you know, the, the warrior plays through a broken hand. Well, that's a little bit of a hyperbole has played through injuries for the past couple of years. Not that, not that Mookie Betts is going to be the future at second with Pedroia there, but it could be an opportunity, uh, to get Mookie Betts in the lineup a little more often at a comfortable position for him and, you know, still be able to transition to the outfield or even showcase him at second base for a trade. Uh, so even someone like, you know, like Dustin Pedroia, might be, you know, all it's going to take is one 
head for a slide where he nicks that finger again and, you know, they decide to sit him down, you know, they're probably going to have to tranquilize him and, and, and to get him out of the lineup. But, you know, it, it could happen. Uh, so, yeah, be especially wary of players with somebody breathing down their neck that the team may want to get a little bit of a look at, that they're just looking for a reason. You know, you can't tell Dustin to sit down, you know, just a perfectly healthy Bedroya. He ain't going to do it. But uh, give him a reason. And, you know, and there's there's players like that on other teams. And uh, in the article, you mentioned Troy Tulowitzki. Here's a guy uh, at the start of the year, you hedged your bets. It looked like, oh, my goodness, this was the year when he was finally going to play 145 or 150 games, finally going to get 650 at-bats. Sure enough, the uh, the joyride comes to an end, and he seems like a really strong candidate for a team in Colorado that's going nowhere to say, you know, uh, grab some wood, bub. Uh, we're going to try to see what we got here with Rutledge and all those other guys. Right. Now, the other thing, too, is uh, I think I mentioned this in the in the HQ piece, uh, not, not in the Masters Ball piece, but is don't count on these guys that are Joe Maurer, uh, Tulowitzki. Uh, well, Cliff Lee at this point, it, it sounds like he's not coming back. If you're if you're comeback, if, if your ability to win, it counts on one of these players coming back. Do your best to find a, a, a plan B or even plan C. Treat it as gravy. Don't when you you know when you do the category analysis. Don't say okay, Tulo's coming back mid-August. He's not having the surgery, and he'll give me this and this and this. Don't do that. Try to you know do your managing as if he's not coming back. The same with you know with same with Joe Mauer. They've uh, they've now got uh, Vargas up there, and you know maybe there's a, now you've got the reason not to play Joe Mauer. He's a warrior, but you know if he isn't 100% when he comes back. They've got the Parmalee and, and Calabello can easily fill in, and then they can let Vargas just hit DH and see if the kid can hit, and there's a reason to sit Joe Maurer down. So don't plan on, uh, you know, Eric Hosmer. Don't plan on the stats from these guys, uh, Brandon Phillips, Joey Votto. They're all gravy if, if you get them. Well, speaking of gravy, factor number three, you say, is the potential upside of the players you're considering. Now, if you're in a league where the, you know, there's a certain amount of players in the league get to eat a few more jelly beans than the other ones at the end of the year, it's a different sort of situation that you might, you know, you may not get the most jelly beans, but maybe you try to get the second or third most and you still play a conservative. But, you know, there's comes a point where you're not going to get any jelly beans at all unless you make a certain move. Who cares if you finished fourth or eighth? If you're not going to get any any anything at all out of it, make the move. You know, if there's especially if there's no some leagues punish you, be it be a draft pick or 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 something. Uh, but if if there's if the if the ramifications are limited, go for the upside move if you weren't going to win anyway. And that's you know that's difficult at times because you know especially you know if you we spend all this time analyzing trends and analyzing leading indicators and and BABIP and this and that. And sometimes it's the old, you know, Lloyd Christmas, you're just telling me I have a chance sort of situation, which you have to go by. I think you put it well when you said players uh, often come in sort of two formats. You've got high ceilings and low floors or vice versa, and your team context is going to depend on whether you want to protect a situation you want a high floor, and you'll accept a low ceiling, but if you've got to really make a run for it, then you've got to take a chance on the downside risk with the low floor, but you get the higher ceiling as well. The last thing you mentioned, and I think this is a little controversial, Todd, is the idea of streaks. It's it's streaks and in history, in that 
some players have got the reputation of being second-half players, and some players may have had fantastic Augusts and Septembers last year. History is not guaranteed to repeat itself in that in that sort of situation. So don't uh, assume the, the guy that went nuts last August or last September is going to do so again this year. And, you know, streaks too, although there have, you know, the streaks sort of pertains to the, to the daily game. Do you play a hot player? Do you not play a hot player? And there is some, you know, the research presently that's out and published says streaks are non-predictive. They're hinting at a study going on now that says that might not be the case. But until I actually see the study and see the data and see how it went about, how it went, you know, how they went about doing it, I'm not ready to, to, you know, put my hat in either ring at this point. Is it, you know, yes or no? But, um, riding streaks, I think at this point, uh, especially since at this point of the season, the player's baseline is what he's doing right now. He may not continue that next year. I mean, I think we, you know, players like Brett Gardner that are a poor, a performing above their normal level can, can expect it to be continued to be forming above it. This isn't to say they'll maintain it, but at least for the bulk of this year, studies show they now own it at least for the next couple months. So I think what you've done to date supersedes, to me anyway, a streak or your history. Um, so, you know, especially in the daily, you know, leaves with daily moves or or free agent wires, uh, picking up the hot guy and dropping a better player is you're probably you you're probably going to lose out even if it's only five or six weeks. Over the course of the next six weeks, that better player will still give you better numbers than the guy who's hot this week. But if there is any kind of momentum to streaks, we assume that we're only talking about hot streaks, but what about cold streaks? What if you had a, an established player with a, with a much better baseline than the, uh, than the streaky hot guy that you're looking at, but your established player's riding a two-week cold streak? Does that now make you at least a little more interested in possibly replacing the cold guy with the hot guy? Because streaks, if they are... Uh, if they do have momentum and carry on of their own weight, then they should have that in both directions. The, the key with streaks, I mean, there's the, there's a whole mental aspect, which I don't know enough about, but I know enough not to particular, you know, just categorically deny that it exists. They're not robots. They're people. Now, I pay a little more attention to a cold streak. Now, the thing with a streak, is it a lucky streak or is it, you know, are, are, is the player truly not playing as well? And the gauge I use with that is strikeouts. It's a little bit harder with hot streaks to say a guy's not striking out, he's hot. I'm not sure I'm willing to take that leap of faith, but I do feel that if a player is striking out more than usual, it's fair to say that he's not you know, that he is, you know, really, truly cold or not playing well. So I, you know, is it, you know, did a guy, is a guy just hitting a bunch of atom balls or is he just not making contact as he normally does? And if a player is striking out at an elevated rate in the midst of a cold streak, I'm much more willing to, to put him on the bench than I am a, 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 a hot player who isn't striking out very much. You know, if I, if I look to see a guy that's hot, I don't know that I will, uh, even if he hasn't struck out very much over the past of the week, that's not enough for me to pick him up. But I am uh, much more willing to bench a player that is striking out a lot. 
Do these same kind of definitions and considerations apply to pitchers as to hitters? Pitchers is a little different uh, in general, and HQ has done these studies as well. Streaks are more relevant for pitchers. Pitching, if you're on a hot streak, and you know, I mean, if you're on a hot streak, you're not always going to stay on that hot streak, or a pitcher would just keep getting better and better and better. But if you do the math, a pitcher who is pitching well is more likely to continue to pitch well. Doesn't again doesn't mean he will. It just means he's more likely to have another good outing uh, than if a hitter is hitting well. Then he's you know that he's going to have a good that game that night. So with pitchers, I am much more. I mean, I'm not just much more. I look for that. Uh, I look for pitchers that are throwing the ball well. And again, you got to separate the outcomes from the skills. Uh, you know, is he striking guys out? Is he not walking guys? Is you know how, what, what's up with the home runs? Uh, look at the hit rate. Is it lucky or unlucky? But because at this point we're only going to get five or six more starts out of these guys, it's not as if they're throwing two start weeks every week. Well, more than five or six. But you know we're not going to be getting you know double digit starts from everybody. Uh, every start matters, and you know, you can't take a pitcher like you might in May and say you know what I'm going to stash him on my reserve until he has a couple of good outings in a row. Well, if you do that, it's September 15th already, and, you know, you're going to get him for one or two starts, and who knows what he's going to do. So, sure, uh, I'm much more willing, especially if I need to make up pitching points, to use a pitcher who's had a good couple of outings in a row uh, at this point. And, again, the, the flip side being, if he's not pitching well, you know what, I'm going to be a little more conservative, especially in August, and sit him down. I know the PQS pure quality starts metric at Baseball HQ is a fairly reliable predictor of that kind of hotness or coldness. You want to see a guy who's got a string of fives and fours, five being the best score f- and uh, on a scale of one to five. And if you see a, a pitcher who's got, you know, five, five, three, four, five as his last five starts, we always present his last five starts. That's a pretty good indicator that he's going to be a, a, a good play, a good a good risk to take, even if he's a, maybe not a name pitcher. And conversely, if you see a guy who's, you know, two one zero two one, then you got to start thinking, wow, this guy's not pitching well for whatever reason. Could be a nagging little minor injury. Could be that he's lost uh, focus, you know, so, something going on with his mechanics. There's so many things in that package. And I remember a research report. I talked about this recently with somebody here on the show. I did a report about... Uh, pitch counts and how uh, the pitch count in game one would affect the pitcher's performance in game two. And the theory was if you had a very high pitch count outing, you would probably suffer for it in the next outing. And it turned out to be exactly the opposite, that a pitcher who threw the most reliable predictor of a PQS5 start the next week was a PQS5 start with a very high pitch count the week before. I'm talking 110, 120, 125, those kind of pitch counts. And the reason was, I surmised, that the fact that the guy threw 120 pitches in the game doesn't mean he was ever working really hard because he got a PQS5. He didn't give up a lot of walks. He didn't give up a lot of hits. Therefore, there wasn't a lot of high-stress pitching from the stretch during the game. And 120 pitches is not a bugaboo. It turns out it's a pretty good indicator that the guy's pitching well, especially if he gets deep into a game, racks up a PQS5. That's a guy you want to start in your next daily game opportunity. Right, and I also think, I know, there's some sort of bias in that a guy who goes 110, 120 pitchers more often than not is a pretty good pitcher to begin with. 
I mean, occasionally you will find the, you know, you know, Aaron Harang had that, you know, nine inning, 115 pitch complete game. But I think, you know, the subset of pitchers that go that far are probably the better pitchers to begin with. But no, you're right. I, it's not the, the bigger point being you shouldn't be scared away by it. Um, you know, I would, the concern I would have would be if it's a pitcher in a pennant race coming down the stretch where his, you know, this is kind of dovetailing on that what we talked about with hitters. But the, the concern would be if it's a pitcher, you know, that's going to be in the playoffs, you know, especially, you know, a John Lester. I mean, last night he went out and, you know, kept going and kept going and kept going. If it's September 15th and they've got such a great bullpen in Oakland and the game's well in hand, you may be pulling Lester after six or seven innings just to conserve him for the playoffs. And, you know, those in, those innings matter. Those extra strikeouts and the extra influence on your area and whip matter. Uh, so that would be my bigger concern would be not performance, but just getting pulled from a game early later on in the year. Well, you know how we were saying earlier that just talking about these things inspires you to start thinking about possible research, and that that might be an idea to look at. Do the better teams understand that there's nothing wrong with a 110-pitch outing? If John Lester coasts through eight innings with 115 or 120 pitches, but he's only had a runner here, runner there, never really in any uh danger of losing the game because it's 5 nothing or 6 nothing the score. Maybe they know it's okay, let them pitch 110 innings. Uh, and maybe lesser teams just say it's 100 pitches and that's it. I don't care if he's throwing a no-hitter. And we do know that there are teams like that. It's pretty interesting and something to look forward to. Uh, Todd, you had a fantasy football article I read, and I know some people will hear, fantasy football, I don't want to hear about that. And this isn't really about fantasy football. It's about an idea that you came up with, and I think it's genius. And that is in a straight draft format, you should be allowed in your turn to not just take one player, but to take shares of multiple players. So I'll take 25% of uh, of. Peyton Manning, I'll take 15% of, uh, of Tom Brady and LaShawn McCoy and so forth, and you should be able to, to do that until there are no percentage points left of a particular player. How did you think of that, and how do you think it would work? Well, it came about at the FSTA. I was with my partner, mentioned before, Lara Michaels, at a football draft, and we had the first pick, and you know we know football. We just don't know football all that well in May. So, you know, we, we knew enough that there were four running backs that every, you know, you ask four different people, you're going to get four different answers. So, you know, we, we, we came up with who we wanted to pick, but I kind of jokingly said to Lars, I said, you know, geez, it'd be easier if we could just take, you know, 25% of Peterson, McCoy, Forte, and Charles and, and do it that way. And we kind of laughed and then we took Jamal Charles. Uh, I just told the story to a couple people and, they kind of reacted in a similar fashion. You know, I was just telling the story just anecdotally to tell the story more than not to pitch an idea of a new draft. And a couple of people ears perked up and was like, you know, that, that's a good idea. Um, you know, if you don't do that, I'm going to do it. So I wrote about it and we're going to try to implement it. Now, you know, it's, we're talking football. There's no reason why we can't be having this conversation again in February about putting together uh, a, a baseball draft in, in a similar fashion. Now the, you know, I'm finding that the limitations might be a, a scoring service, but, you know, if I have to run it off a spreadsheet, I'll run it off a spreadsheet. But, but the idea being, uh, especially now with injuries and, and, and the like, it, you know, it, it plus just, just, you know, we talked about different strategies 
in baseball to find the next thing. You know, imagine it's the same way in football. It just it's it's different. It gives it a different way of thinking about it. Do you diversify? Do I just say the heck with it? I want 100% of this player. No one else can have him. Do you want to have an injury hedge? And to be honest, part of my thinking is because I'm so involved in the daily game where hedging and diversification is part and parcel to winning, but then going for it all, you know, involves taking chances. So you have that dichotomy too. You know, the heck with it. I think Jamal Charles is going to have a great year. I don't want to give anybody part of him. Do I just take all all the shares of him and, and let the next guy worry about, you know, the other three? Or, or do I take, you know, 50% Charles and, you know, 50% Matt Forte or whatever? You know, baseball would be the same way. You know, Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera. Or imagine taking, you know, Mike half Mike Trout and half Clayton Kershaw with your first pick. Yeah, it's interesting. I can see that there would be logistical uh, difficulties to overcome. You'd have to, I think you'd have to set some kind of limit, some kind of minimum share requirement. So you couldn't say, with my first pick, I take 2% of Clayton Kershaw, 2% of Mike Trout, 2% right. of Paul Goldschmidt, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> you know, your first pick could end up taking 15 minutes and everybody would die of boredom. And you'd have somebody would have to keep track of how much percent of, of all the players was available when you got down the list. So it'd be pretty cumbersome. But if you said, look, you can take... Every player has four shares, and you could take one, two, three, or four of, of the shares, depending on how many are left. I think that would be workable. It might be more workable, do you think, maybe in a slow draft where you were doing it, you know, a, a pick a day kind of thing so that everybody could keep track and, and that kind of thing, at least in the early going? Yeah, no, absolutely it would have to be uh, a slow draft or a very, very patient room, uh, you know, because, you, know, you know, we've been talking about it. It's, it's like... We're at this point. We're probably going to be doing this with instead of having four, just having two of everybody, uh, because there are some sites that can handle more than one player being on the same, you know, the, the same player being on more than one team. The the catch being he can't be two versions of the player can't be on the same team. So it's sort of like we're gonna have to crawl before we walk and you know, maybe do it this way. So my first pick, I can't take, you know, all, you know, both shares of Matt Forte. I have to split it into one Forte and one uh, LaShawn McCoy or whatever, which it's still a, a step in the direction. And, you know, we just have to uh, get it, build up a head of steam and, and convince one of these sites that there is a, a market for it. And they spend some time in the offseason coding it. And then we can do it next year. Uh, or, I, you know, there's ways I can, you know, I, you can pick a dummy player that's not going to score any points. And then at the end of the day, I go on the site and I manually add on those points. So there are workarounds as well. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, it's it's going to happen for football. And if you have SiriusXM, you may even hear me talking about it and, and, and then being a commentator on a draft in the near future. We're still working on that. But then, uh, you know, if it, if it flies, there's no reason, like I said, that we can't at least come up with some sort of iteration for baseball. Well, certainly not. I mean, there there's no difference between the two. Although I um, I expect that there's I don't play fantasy football, but I think there's more differentiation of skill and so forth that you need to look at in baseball, especially the hitter pitcher divide, and then relief pitchers and power hitters versus stolen base guys and that kind of thing. But let me put you on the spot. We haven't talked about this at all, so I, I'm really catching you off guard here, and I apologize in advance. But suppose it's 2015, 
and we're going to sit down for our baseball draft, and we do have a four-share rule that you can take one, two, three, or four shares of anybody who's available, and you've got first pick. What do you think you would do with four quarter shares that you could pick any four players or any combination that adds up to a to a full share? What would you do with the first pick overall? I'm pretty sure that I would go half Trout and half Kershaw. I'm pretty sure that's what I would do too, although I might be tempted to hedge my bets and go with uh, some combination of uh, um, Trout and McCutcheon or Trout and, and uh, Goldschmidt and then take half a share of Kershaw. And what's interesting to me about this whole idea is not so much that you have to sit there and think, who do I want f- to suit my team's needs, but there's a huge tactical implication that is somewhat manifest in normal straight drafts in that sometimes you want to pick a guy to keep him from going to somebody else. But now you also have the added opportunity of picking a share of a guy to reduce the impact that that guy can have on somebody else. Going back to that, when you start talking about things, uh, think of Billy Hamilton in in this sort of situation. You don't want a whole share of Billy Hamilton because you don't want all those deals. But what if you take, you know, Billy Hamilton and then, you know, take a power hitter or a closer or whatever as the second half of that of that share, that that would be real interesting, I think, because, uh, you know, I'm not going to take Billy Hamilton necessarily, but if I only get half of them, you know what, especially if there's a power hitter and you put the two of them together and you end up getting with, a you know, a regular player at that point, that could be interesting. Yeah, it sure could. And also, especially before this year, there was a lot of discussion about the inherent risk of Billy Hamilton. We didn't know if he could hit. We didn't know if he was going to be able to even get on base because he was not a terrific drawer of walks. Uh, he hadn't really mastered bunting. All of the things that he actually turned out to do reasonably well this year and became a, a very valuable player. But coming into the year, if somebody said to you, hey, there's a chance this guy could steal 80 bases, there's a chance he could steal two and get sent down. Wouldn't it have been a a really good third option to say I'll take a quarter of them? Yeah, you know if he if he steals the eighty, I'll get twenty, and I'll be real happy with that from that slot. And meanwhile, I'll also maybe grab a, a power hitter, like you said, or a or a a closer. But I only want a half a share of closers because they're kind of risky too. I'll take Jim Johnson. <laughs> I'll take a quarter share of Jim Johnson. Uh, and and it would still be a disaster for you, but not so much of a disaster because you could get three quarters of other closers somewhere else in the draft. Well, I agree 100%. That's, I think that's what makes it fun. Now, in general, I think that we've kind of, I mean, I don't know, taken a lot of the risk management out of fantasy baseball, going to five by five and, and having reserve lists. And I'm kind of, I like the old way of, you know, if you draft, you know, Javier Vasquez, he's yours for the year. You know, draft Edinson Volquez as a more current example. He's yours for the year. Take the risk. And this sort of is a complete hedge way of looking at it. But, you know, you got to keep up with the Joneses. If that's the thinking, if that's what the populace wants, you know, that's what, you know, that's what I'll give them. And I'll just have to figure out a way to beat them at their game. Well, I think it's a terrific idea. It definitely is something that we should be thinking about. It, it adds a whole new layer of strategy and tactics and budget planning and all these kind of things. Uh, uh, I don't know that you could apply it in a, in an auction draft. Could you, uh, where you were saying, you could say, I'll, I'll bid $25 on the first quarter share of Miguel Cabrera, $7, or whatever you think it's worth. That starts getting real cumbersome. Well, what you could, and I thought, you know, I've been thinking about this. What you could do is, you know, let's just do, just, just do clones and, you know, if I'm willing to bid, you know, 47 and 
you stop the bidding and, you know, going once, going twice sold. Now you say to the second person who was the second highest bidder, are you willing to pay the same 47 that Patrick paid for Trout? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, you get him as well or something like that. I mean, there's, I think there's, there, there, it would be possible if, you know, put some heads together. We, you know, at the Arizona Fall League in the middle of a ball game, I think we could come up with a way to figure it out. Yeah, it, it would be super interesting. And imagine, imagine trading. Now you don't have to trade away if you've got Mike Trout. You could say, look, I'll give you half of your, my Mike Trout for half of your Clayton Kershaw, if presuming that that guy had that half available and could, could still keep guys behind. It would make trading a lot more interesting, too. Right, and it's going to make life of the commissioner a living hell. But you know that that's like, if I'm getting myself into this mess, you know, I know it's part of what it has to be. And we've been thought, thought about that too. How do you run waivers? How do you run you know that sort of thing? Have you been in the whole player? You've been in the half player? You know, during this during the week, if you have football, if I have 100 percent of Jamal Charles, do I have to start him all 100 percent, or can I just start you know half of him or that sort of thing? So you know, there the it's you know it's a little bit more complicated than you can just draft four shares of the same player or whatever you know there it, there's some repercussions that go along with it but all that you know molded together adds to the fun adds to the intrigue adds to the strategy of it all and on the other hand you could have a league that says look we're not going to have all these weekly roster changes because th- those roster changes that you do every Friday when you're setting your Sunday lineup for a football draft or every Sunday when you're setting your lineup for a, uh, a fantasy baseball uh, roster is risk mitigation of one kind or another or, or matching up in w- of one kind or another. And you could accomplish that at the draft by, a, by an intelligent assembly of quarter shares and half shares of particular guys on particular teams in particular divisions and so forth. And then you could just, the, the rule could be, that's your team. And barring injury, you're stuck with it. You gotta you gotta start them every week, but you could be a little more comfortable with that because you don't have all your eggs in so few baskets. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, sure. You everybody that you draft plays, and you just have you know whatever you have to you draft a certain lineup that has X positions, and everybody gets points. There's there's way now making it a best ball way might be a little more difficult because a lot of football does that. You draft thirty players in the players that fill an active roster that give you the highest amount of points is your roster. Uh, the computer figures it out for you. It might be a little more difficult if there's all sorts of shares involved. But, yeah, just taking, you know, drafting X amount of players, having them fill this legal lineup, and we're done, that might be an interest. that might be a way to go, uh, especially in baseball. Um, yeah, or anywhere where, like, yeah. one of the big disincentives to a lot of leagues where you have these – uh, requirement that you have to spend all this time studying and making your moves, as you said, even in uh, full year leagues, we're getting to the point where we're having daily moves, and a lot of people, you know, we got lives, we don't want to have to do that. We like the idea of being able to hedge our risk here and there, but if you're uh, instead of your fantasy football roster being, you know, forty guys deep, and you need three quarterbacks starting one a week, and you need uh, you know five running backs starting two a week, and so forth, you could just say, look. You've got one slot. You've got one quarterback slot. You've got one running back slot. You've got one tight end slot all the way down the list or catcher, first baseman, what have you. But it's divisible into four quarters. And you can can arrange that any way you like. But once you get it all set up, you're locked in. 
And if Jamal Charles rushes for 160 yards in a game that week and you happen to have half of his shares, then you get 80 out of that slot and you get all your bonuses based on the cumulative score of the running back, your half share of Jamal Charles, your quarter share of Ray Rice, assuming he's not in jail, and so forth. Oh, yeah. no, A draft and hold might be the way to go just because we all love to draft. I mean, you know, mocks and this and that. But then, you know... Doing it, finding a time to do a draft is a piece of cake. Finding a time to then manage those twenty teams isn't as difficult, isn't as isn't as easy as it may have seemed back in in March when you kept saying yes to all those leagues, or right. or now when you kept saying yes to all those fantasy football leagues. So a, a version of a draft and hold that might be perfect for this situation because, you, like you said, you do a lot of your hedging or diversification or injury management within the draft itself. So I can I can see that working for sure. Well, we'll set it up, Todd, and we'll we'll make millions. I tell you, <laughs> millions. <laughs> there we go, Todd, Todd. Thanks a million for joining us this week. We'll catch up with you again in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, looking forward to it, Patrick. We'll talk to you then. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, ESPN. This guy's all over the place and well worth reading wherever you find him. And best of all, he appears every other Friday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. The Metric Minute, Pitcher Matchups, and Master Notes coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. One and one to Williams. Everybody quiet now here at Fenway Park after they gave him a standing ovation of two minutes, knowing that this is probably his last time at bat. One out, nobody on, last of the eighth inning. Jack Fisher into his windup. Here's the pitch. Williams swings, and there's a long drive to deep right. That ball is going. HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Greg Fishwick on deck with Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups. Ray Murphy is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. And here to tell you about hard hit rate for batters is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Hard hit ball rate measures the percentage of balls in play that were rated as hard hit by BaseballHQ.com stat provider, uh, Baseball Info Solutions. It's a great indicator to measure the quality, uh, not necessarily the frequency, but the quality of contact that a hitter is making. A hard hit ball rate can be found on BaseballHQ.com player link pages. It's abbreviated as HH% percent on the website. Typically, the average hard hit ball rate rests around 29% uh, from year to year, so meaning 29% of all balls put in play are rated as hard hit balls. Uh, Some of the highest hard hit ball rates in 2014 bring up some interesting names. Uh, Lucas Duda certainly won. Uh, Duda's enjoying a breakout season with 20 home runs uh, through Wednesday's games, and his 43% hard hit ball rate is definitely playing a factor there, uh, definitely making some hard contact at a high rate. Uh, Miguel Cabrera, of course, uh, you know he leads all of baseball with a 45% hard hit ball rate, and for him, that's that's normal. Uh, that number stayed in the mid 40s over three of the last four seasons, so no surprise um, that he's there again. Uh, a couple other names: Jason Worth, Chris Davis from Milwaukee, and Kyle Seeger are other guys with above 40% hard hit ball rates. Uh, the ability to hit the ball hard is a repeatable skill, so it's a good idea to glance at, uh, at, at hard hit ball rate to get a gauge for the quality of contact that a hitter is making. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our Metric Minute commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for our weekly pitcher matchups report. Our Baseball HQ matchup ratings look at every starting pitcher matchup, assessing both pitcher skills and recent performance, as well as the strength of opposing teams, to arrive at a matchup rating from plus 5 to minus 5. We recommend pitchers with matchup ratings of 2.0 or higher, while we warn against pitchers with ratings of 0 or worse. Everything in between is a risk versus benefit play you'll have to assess in your team and league context. Now looking at Max Scherzer of Detroit at Toronto against Marcus Stroman, Zach Wheeler of the Mets visiting Kyle Kendrick of the Phils, and more, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. The dust is still settling from a flurry of non-waiver trade deadline deals that sent several pitchers packing. Let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to look at some starters who may have been forgotten for lack of attention lately. We'll feature one pitcher from each league on each day. In the American League on Saturday, young Marcus Stroman starts at home for Toronto with a matchup rating higher than his opponent. That may not sound like much, but what if I told you his opponent is on the Detroit Tigers? That's more interesting, but who is his opponent, you might ask? It's none other than 2013 American League Cy Young Award winner Max Scherzer, who has a nice matchup rating of 217. Scherzer's name alone might be enough for you to ignore anyone pitching against him. But Stroman's matchup rating is better than Scherzer's. It's 263. Stroman has had three PQS disasters, but they've all been on the road. At home, he's had seven starts and five have been PQS fives. The other two? PQS 4s. Defeating Detroit is a tough task, but the Tigers and the Jays have nearly identical records, score nearly the same number of runs per game, and allow nearly the same number of runs per game. Toronto's home record is almost the same as Detroit's road record. So Stroman could surprise in this one. In the National League on Saturday, the Washington Nationals visit the Atlanta Braves in Turner Field with first place on the line. If Tanner Roark had pitched four fewer innings last year, he would now be in the conversation for National League Rookie of the Year. Roark comes into Atlanta with a matchup rating of 175 for the Nationals. The Braves counter with journeyman Aaron Harang. Harang got off to a fantastic start this season, and owners scrambled to pick him up while we warned that it wouldn't last. Sure enough, after base performance values of 81 in April and 170 in May, His June and July BPVs were minus 24 and 16. After nine PQS dominant starts in April and May, Harang had only four in June and July. In his first 12 starts, he allowed more than two earned runs only twice. But in 11 starts after that, he has allowed more than two earned runs four times. Is he finally nearing the end of the line? Not by the looks of his matchup rating, which is a nifty 271. Harang hasn't fallen as far as we expected, at least not yet. His home PQS scores in five starts since June 1st still average 3-2. Harang should still be serviceable in this one. In the American League on Sunday, Jason Hamill tries again for his new team, the Oakland Athletics. After a stellar start to his season with the Cubs, Hamill's PQS scores since joining the A's are 2-0-1-0-1. and The Minnesota Twins bring in Phil Hughes to face Hamill at Oco Coliseum. Hughes has a matchup rating of 148, and Hamill has a matchup rating of 220. 
Hamill has the hammer because the A's are awesome at home, averaging almost five runs per game while allowing only 3.5. The Twins score only 4.2 runs per game and allow 4.5. Oakland is 17 games above 500 at home, and the Twins are six games below 500 on the road. Against right-handed pitchers, the A's have the best record in baseball. The Twins rank 21st. Oakland has the fourth best record against teams under 500, like the Twins, while Minnesota ranks 19th against teams over 500, like the A's. Hamill has a good chance to show his stuff to the A's in this one. And in the National League on Sunday, it's a rerun of the tortoise and the hare in Philadelphia. Under the radar, Kyle Kendrick of the Phillies faces the New York Mets' skyrocketing young keeper target, Zach Wheeler. Kendrick has the higher matchup rating of 177, but is Wheeler a better bet even with his matchup rating of 136? The 29-year-old Kendrick plods into his eighth season with the Phillies and always seems to be an overlooked afterthought. But since a PQS disaster in his first home start, Kendrick has put up seven PQS dominant starts in 10 tries at Citizens Bank Park. Meanwhile, Wheeler has become a popular rebuilding target in his second season with the Mets at age 24. He's sprinted through a nice seven-game streak since June 30th, going at least six innings in each start and firing four PQS doms. But he was blessed with a strand rate of 93% during that time, so it's hard to tell what's real just yet. Only 10 teams have losing records at home, and Philadelphia is one of them. In fact, the Phillies' record at home is better than only two other teams. The Mets' road record is actually better than the Phil's home record, and the Mets also are slightly better than the Phil's against teams with records under 500, which both the Mets and the Phillies are. Let's go with the better team in this one. Slow and steady may win the race, but youth and talent should win this game. So get ready for a ride on the Wheeler bandwagon. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has the pitcher matchup segment here at Baseball HQ Radio every Friday. If your league rules or format let you take advantage of pitcher streaming, then you need to check out the daily matchups reports as well as the exclusive Baseball HQ pitcher matchups tool only at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. With a look at more GM lessons from the deadline, here's BaseballHQ.com co-GM Ray Murphy. Last week, we presented eight lessons gleaned from Billy Bean's trade deadline approach. But he is not the only general manager who did good work in July. Here, then, are eight additional lessons we can take from the deadline actions of some other major league general managers. One, when selling determine which assets you are selling and which you are keeping before you get into negotiations. Ben Charrington. Ben Charrington swung four deadline day deals. That type of flurry doesn't come together without significant pre-planning. But Charrington clearly wasn't in a willy-nilly, trade-anything-that-isn't-locked-down mode either. Koji Urahara was a possible trade chip, but he was retained. Mike Napoli could conceivably have been made available as well, especially given the dearth of power on the market. And Boston's acquisition of Alan Craig could have made Napoli expendable. But Charrington drew a hold-sell line and stuck to it. It's also notable that Charrington executed his deadline day trades in order of highest return first. He dealt Lester, then Lackey, then Miller, then Drew. When time matters, take care of the big-ticket items first. There's a bonus lesson. Two, 
Know your timeline to returning to contention and target your acquisitions accordingly. From Charrington and Andrew Friedman in Tampa. In our Billy Bean discussion last week, we noted the differing types of packages that went to sellers. The Cubs focused on prospects with long-term potential, while the Red Sox brought back established big league-ready talent. Tampa skewed more toward the Boston end of that spectrum in acquiring Drew Smiley and Nick Franklin as their return for price. Particularly for a budget-conscious organization like the Rays, one key consideration is to try to get their young and cost-controlled talent to peak in the majors at the same time, forming the core of a contending team. Even if the Rays had been offered a Russell for price deal by Oakland, and maybe they were, if Russell's timeline to emerging as one of those core contributors doesn't match the Rays' timeline, that just isn't a good fit for them. Number three, make certain that the player you are acquiring actually solves the problem at hand. Jerry DePoto, LA Angels. DePoto also followed one of the bean lessons from last week when he made multiple moves to address a single need. In the Angels' case, their bullpen. First, he traded Ernesto Freire for Jason Grilly, but Grilly proved to not be a sufficient fix for their bullpen backend issues. DePoto then added Joe Thatcher for matchup purposes and then dropped the hammer on his bullpen problems by landing Houston Street. After that street deal, DePoto had left no doubt that he had fully resolved his team's biggest weakness, in fact, turning it into a strength. The lesson? Don't take half measures. Once you identify a weakness to be addressed, address it fully and completely. Four, worry about acquiring assets, not about making the pieces fit together neatly. From Charrington. Adding Cespedes and Craig to an already muddled outfield DH first base mix in Boston didn't create any clarity about which pieces of the puzzle are part of Boston's 2015 plans, and which are not. But Charrington didn't worry about that in July. April 2015 is still a long way off. There is an entire offseason ahead in which to shape this collection of sometimes mismatched assets into a cohesive roster. For now, accumulating assets and creating strengths from which to spend this offseason is sufficient. In any rebuild, talent accumulation is the first step. Balancing can follow later on. 5. Target assets that are undervalued by their current organization. Andrew Friedman. Again, extrapolating from a bean lesson from last week, trust your process. When you are secure in your own position and abilities, that allows you to prey upon those who are not as secure. In maximizing his return on price, Friedman preyed on the job insecurity and desperation of Zach Zorenchik in Seattle. Zorenchik is making a big push for a playoff berth and had an asset in Nick Franklin that had little value to the Mariners because of their extreme short-term focus. By targeting Franklin, Friedman capitalized on that perceived value gap. Franklin was more valuable to the Rays' longer-term objectives than the Mariners' near-term ones. Six. If you're at a favorites position before making a move, you have the luxury to wait out the market and act last. Dave Dombrowski in Detroit. With his berth in the playoffs relatively secure, and with a roster that was mostly already built for playoff success, Dave Dombrowski could afford to wait out the trade deadline and let the other contenders chase him. It might have been coincidental, but it seems like more than just happenstance that the Tigers swooped in very late on deadline day to land Price after Oakland had landed Lester and Samarja. Only at that point, after the Lester deal early on deadline day, could Dabrowski have looked around and seen another AL team with a better rotation than his. With most of the deadline activity done at that point, Dabrowski still had time to make one last assessment of his need for price and act accordingly. 7. Whenever possible, spend from your most abundant resources to fill your needs. Brian Cashman of the Yankees. There have been mixed reviews as to the Yankees' deadline moves, but they followed their usual approach under Brian Cashman. They improved their roster, and in doing so spent more money than prospect capital. Their near-boundless financial resources make this a sound strategy. 
spending a resource that is less scarce for them. There is an allegory here for fantasy players. If you are contending and have room under your cap to take on salary, then the player you acquire doesn't have to return full value for their salary to be worthwhile. In fantasy terms, paying 20 budget dollars for one standings gain point doesn't make sense in a vacuum, but it may well make sense if that's the point that puts you over the top. And finally, number eight, standing pat is sometimes your best move. Alex Anthopoulos in Toronto. When you conduct a roster assessment and start identifying possible trade partners, there is no guarantee you will find a match. Maybe the holes you have don't line up with what is available on the market. Maybe you identify a target or two, but get outbid or just can't reach an agreement. In Toronto's case, several of their current problems are short-term ones that will resolve themselves as some of their injured players return. And if you are high enough on prospects like Marcus Stroman and Aaron Sanchez that you aren't willing to mortgage your future by trading them, then the resulting best move for your situation may just be to sit back and tell your team that you believe in them as constituted and stand pat. Note that this last point does not apply to Ruben Amaro Jr. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 8th. 
Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 54 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest for this edition, Talk with Todd correspondent Todd Zola from MastersBall.com and Chandler Park and ESPN and, of course, here at BaseballHQ.com as well. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Metric Minute commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. Right now on the site, I have a Facts and Flukes Spotlight article going in-depth on the underappreciated Daniel Murphy of the Mets. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And more importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with Corey Schwartz from Major League Baseball Advanced Media on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>